All right. Well, happy Father's Day to the dads in the room. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And I see some salty residue in some of your dad's eyes. It's okay. You can cry. Just let it out today. And um, I'm a dad of, of three kids. And today's a great day, I know, for, for a lot of people just to celebrate. But it's also a day for some of us uh, of sorrow. And there's different reasons for that. Um, some of us have lost our dad. And you're sitting here and watching even a video like that. And you're reminded of that truth, that your dad is no longer with you. And that brings about some sadness. Some of you feel like, if you're honest... Hey, my dad's still alive, but it feels like he was never here, and he just wasn't a good father, um, and if he had to write you a letter, you're just like, I don't even know what he would say, and um, I want to point us back to our Heavenly Father. We're going to do that a lot today, but I want to let you know, and you, you guys got a gift when you walked in. All our men should have gotten one, um, and it was a, a gift, but also a verse, and I want to read it just real briefly for you. You can look at it with me if you want. Isaiah 64, 8, it says this. It says, you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hand. You see, today, I, I don't know where you are, but I know dad's in the room. I can tell you that, that fatherhood is challenging, right? I've, I have three kids, and, and some of the happiest moments of my life have been fathering. Some of the most humble home moments of my life have been as a father, and it's the full spectrum of, of being a father. And, and sometimes as a father, you can feel like, hey, the buck stops with me. Like provider, career, success, at home, I got to do everything right and love my spouse and, and parent my kids and be tough, but also be tender. And, and you can kind of feel that weight. And, and typically what we do in the church is on Mother's Day, we, we honor and elevate women. And on Father's Day, we give you a good old hearty rebuke. And so that doesn't maybe help with that pressure of being a father. And you're looking at yourself and yourself and yourself. And this Father's Day, I want to take your eyes off of yourself and put them on your perfectly heavenly father. The Lord is your father, dads, and everybody in this room. You are the clay. He's the potter. He is ultimately molding you, shaping you, forming you for his glory and for your joy. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth of the Bible. That's the beauty of Father's Day is we can be pointed to our perfect heavenly father. And so I'm, I'm going to challenge you dads today. There's going to be some of them. I'm going to challenge all of us with the word of God. Uh, but I also want to encourage you, and I also want to encourage our dads to continue this, this, this fight of being a dad. It's worth it. Um, and to look to your heavenly father and be encouraged by him. And so I'm going to pray for you, uh, not rebuke you quite yet. I'm going to pray for you. And so I would invite you dads, men in the room, all our men, would you just rise with me and stand together? You guys can clap for them. If you're a man in the room... Stand. If you're a man, stand. You don't have to be a dad. All our men, you should be standing right now. I'm going to speak this word over you uh, as you are standing, men, and I'm going to pray over you, and uh, then we'll continue to get in God's word. Remain standing. Father in heaven, I pray for these men who are standing in this room. I pray for the men who are fathers right now. Uh, God, I pray for the men who will be fathers one day. Uh, God, we know that there is a father of lies who speaks to these men every single day about who they should be and who they shouldn't be, about how they measure up and how they're crushing it. God, I know that there's an enemy, there's their flesh, that every day is speaking into their lives. So we stop and we take this moment and we deliberately stand to recognize that the father of lies has been defeated by our heavenly father and that you're the father of love, you're the father of truth, and in this moment, 
God, they would hear from you. They would know, like Joshua says, that they are to be strong and courageous and not live in fear. They would know that everything they should be do everything they should do should be marked by love, that their role is a role of honor, purpose, even in the pain, even in the difficulty, there's purpose, and it's significant purpose. They have the opportunity, every man that's standing in this room, even if it's just with their friends or their future kid one day or their spouse, they have the opportunity to make significant influence and impact. And God, I I recognize as, as a father This is difficult. It's a weighty thing. And God, I pray in those moments we wouldn't deflect. We wouldn't hit escape or eject as maybe our culture will tell us to do, as maybe the father of lies will tell us to do. When things get hard, it's it's not worth it. Why keep going? Am I really appreciated? Can I do this? And God, I pray that right now in the name of Jesus Christ, you would speak truth in the midst of those lies and you would help these men to continue to walk in the strength that you provide, to continue to admit their weakness, because in their weakness, your power is made perfect. To continue to lock arms with other men, to pray, to hold each other accountable, to confess sin, to fight, to talk about the joys of being a father. What a gift. Children are a gift from the Lord. To talk about the joys, but also talk about the hardships. And to to challenge, to encourage one another to keep going because we're getting to invest in the next generation for your glory, for, for generations to come after us and that we get to be a part of that. God, I pray for anyone in this room who feels like they don't have a father. Maybe he was never around. Maybe he was just a really poor father and he doesn't resemble anything about you. God, I pray for the the people in this room who they've lost their dad, that they would know right in this moment that you are a father to the fatherless and that we're about to talk about who you are and your character and your nature and that it would ring true for them today right where they are. And God, we pray as we do dig into your word that you would challenge us, but you would also encourage us and point us to your perfect nature, your perfect person and work. We pray that now in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You can have a seat, guys. Would you clap for them one more time? Well, Mark 11 is where we're going to be. Janine read it just a moment ago. I'd invite you to grab a Bible if you didn't already. Uh, Turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in your New Testament. We are in the middle of a series called Who Do You Say That I Am? And it's in the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been with us, you know this. We've been looking at the life of Jesus to see how his life affects our lives. And today we come to a portion in Mark chapter 11 and 12 where we're going to see two essential traits of God. Two characteristics of God, our our Father. We're going to see them in Jesus because we know from Hebrews chapter 1 that if we want to see what God is like, we look to Jesus. Why? Because Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So maybe you're newer to the faith, maybe you didn't grow up in a pew, and maybe this is one of your first times here today, and you're wondering, what is God really like? You just look to the life of Jesus. That's the beauty of going through the gospel of Mark. We are seeing on display in the person, in the work of Jesus, we're seeing the reflection of God the Father. And as I I know some of you did grow up in the church, maybe some of you are newer to the church, the reality is, is all of us have thoughts about who God is. 
about his character and nature, his person and work. All of us, even if this is your first time today, you have some mental thought about who God is. A.W. Tozer, an old theologian, said that. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So whatever you walked in here today with thoughts of God, whatever you pinpoint is, that's how I think about God, that's one of the most important things about your life. And the reality is there's a spectrum, right? We all think different things about God. Some of you did grow up in a pew, and maybe you grew up in a legalistic environment or religion. And on this side of the spectrum, you would say, Tim, I I see God. Maybe you wouldn't articulate it in this way, but when you think of him, you would say, I think of God as some cosmic, impersonal force. I mean, yeah, he's really strong, but he's out there somewhere. I mean, the universe is here. I mean, all the little intricate details of the universe. I can see there is a God, like there's intelligent design. Like God's a a powerful force, but he doesn't really know me. Or maybe some of you, again, if you grew up in religion, you think God's a divine scorekeeper. I mean, God does know me, and he's definitely tallying up all the time, like, all the things I've done right and all the things I've done wrong. And dads, you maybe feel like this, like, all the times you yelled at their kids or didn't yell at the kids. All the times you you did pray before bedtimes, and all the times you were tired and you just went to bed because you were done with for the day. And you see God as just keeping a tally and marking up a red, uh, marking up a sheet of paper with a red pen. And some of you see God like that. And then some of you swing to the other side of the pendulum, and you don't see God like that. You see God as a grandpa, and he's just nice and and old. He has a little trouble getting around, but he's so nice and accepting and always has a piece of candy in his pocket for you. And you think God thinks the best of me and all the best. He doesn't see the worst parts of me, like only the best parts. And you think of God as a heavenly grandpa. And then some of you think of God as like a heavenly butler. You just think, man, he's here to give me what I want in my best life now. And what God, I'm the center of the universe. Why did you let this happen? It wasn't for my good. I want you to let this happen. It will be for my good. Jesus, I don't care if you don't think it's for my good. I want that. And you see God as a heavenly butler. Where are you on the spectrum? What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so what do you think about God? Where are you on that spectrum? We're going to look at the life of Jesus, and we're going to see two traits about who God is. And I think one of us are going to lean one way or another, and we're going to see we need to understand both to understand God. It's the most important thing about you. So we're going to look at it today. Look at it with me, Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 27. If you take notes, the first trait of God we're going to see in Jesus is his unshakable authority. Unshakable authority. Verse 27 says this, they came, that's Jesus and his disciples, and it says again to Jerusalem. Now we have to stop real quick and kind of frame this up a little bit. They're coming again to Jerusalem because they had just been in Jerusalem. Last week we looked at this, Mark chapter 11 marks the beginning of the last week of the life of Jesus. And as we see this beginning of the last week of Jesus all the way to Mark chapter 16, what we see is two unique things, and we saw them last week, that we've never seen before in the gospel of Mark. We saw the first unique thing is Jesus comes into Jerusalem, but he's not walking like he normally is. Normally, Jesus is walking and teaching. But we see Jesus, Mark 11, last week of his life, he changes it up. He's not walking into Jerusalem. He's riding. 
He's riding in, and he's riding in Palm Sunday as everybody's waving palm leaves and everybody's chanting Hosanna, and he's riding in proclaiming himself as king. Not like any other king, but as as King Jesus, king of the universe, the king who came down, the one who is majesty but also meek, that he rides in, and for the first time, we've never seen that before in the Gospel of Mark, we see the kingship of Jesus when he was in Jerusalem. The day continues, and we see him go into the the temple, and we saw the the kingship of Jesus. That's unique to the gospel of Mark so far. Then we see the holy wrath of Jesus. That's unique to the gospel of Mark so far. We see Jesus roll in the temple, and he sees religious leaders who have turned a place of worship into Walmart on Black Friday, and he's not happy with that, and we see his holy wrath. It's not just Jesus gets angry, right? Do you get angry and flip tables and scare pigeons? I get angry. I don't remember the last time I did that. Jesus does. Anger is not even the right word. If you were here last week, you know it's his holy wrath. Never seen that before with Jesus. Never seen his holy wrath. And and you see that picture in the temple of tables are flying. Money is clanging on the ground. Pigeons are flying. Maybe even some people are flying. And we see the holy wrath of Jesus. And as we come to verse 27, it says, they came again to Jerusalem. So now he's back. And some people are probably like, what is he going to do now? I mean, last time there was birds flying in the air and, and coins dropping on the ground. And everybody was like, oh, we've never seen King Jesus, holy wrath Jesus before. And now he's back. And what we see is he has stirred the pot. This is what Jesus does. He's a revolutionary. He has stirred the pot specifically with his kingship, specifically with his holy wrath. And we know he's stirred the pot by who shows up. Look back at verse 27 with me. We see three people, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, this is the highest Jewish officials there are. Altogether, it was known as the Sanhedrin. We got chief priests, we got scribes, we got elders, all three of the highest Jewish officials, religious leaders, together in one spot for Jesus. You need to be picturing like Gandalf, Dumbledore, and Yoda, all, all in one place, right? They're all here. Now, why are these, all, all these heavyweights coming together in one place? Because of Jesus. You see, they want to ask him some questions. I'm going to read the question in a second. But as you read the question, you don't need to be thinking about an interview. You need to be thinking about an interrogation. What's the question they ask? Verse 28. Jesus, by by what authority are you doing these things? Flipping over tables, clearing out the temple, riding in like a king. Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? What they're saying is an interrogation. They're saying, Jesus, listen, here's the way things work here. We run the show. I mean, Dumbledore, Gandalf, Yoda, like, we're the big men on campus. We're all together. We run the temple, and you didn't get permission to do these things. Who do you think you are? It's an interrogation. And it's just silly, right, if you really think about it. They're at the temple, and they're at this temple that was created for worship. They're at this temple that was created for worship unto who? God. Who's standing right in front of them? God in the flesh, right? And in their silly, theological, puffed up, 
intellectual, conceited minds, they say, how dare you? When Jesus has got to be thinking in the back of his mind, how dare you? I mean, like, you occupy the temple, I own it. I mean, you kind of give people instructions and, and do all these things. Like, I created those instructions and handed them down to you. I'm the owner. You're the steward. I'm the owner. You're just occupying this. And these religious heavyweights have been confused because, because they've been occupying this temple so long, they forgot who owns it. And they have the audacity to interrogate God in the flesh as he, he shows up to them. Now, dads, this is like, you can relate to this, this is like when your kids say our house or my room, like when you go in there or you mess with their stuff, right? Or you tell them to go clean it up. That's my room. And you have to remind them that just because they occupy this place doesn't mean they own it, right? That's what's happening. (laughs) Amen. That's what's happening here. Jesus is going to let them know, hey, there's a difference. There's a difference between owner and occupier. You're the occupier. I'm the owner. We we see it as he gets to verse 29. Look at that verse. I love it when Jesus does this. We've talked about this before. Jesus doesn't often feel the need to just answer a question. He usually answers the question with a question. Or he answers it with a story that you have to decode. Don't you just love Jesus? Maybe you feel attacked and interrogated all the time by people who are asking you questions. I got to have all the answers. I got to have all the answers. Jesus didn't always give them the answers. Just try it in your life. People ask you a question, answer it with a question. Tell them a random story that seems to have nothing to do with their question. And just see how they respond, right? Live like Jesus, right? All right, what's what's his question to them? He does this in this moment, verse 30, look at the verse. He says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? <laughs> They're like, Jesus, who do you think you are? It's an interrogation. You can't clear out the temple. We run this place. And Jesus stops, steps back and says, hey, let me ask you a question. I'm asking the questions around here. Let me ask you this seemingly random question. Who was the, ba- was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, he's talking about John the Baptist. Beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we talked about John the Baptist. He comes preaching repentance. He comes baptizing people, and he's paving the way for Jesus. And so why bring up John the Baptist? Why ask this question? He's putting these religious heavyweight leaders in an awkward position. We see it on display. Verse 31, look at that verse. It says these religious leaders, they, they discussed it with one another, saying, hmm, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? You see, they're, they're deliberating, hey, if we affirm John the Baptist that he's from heaven, his authority is from heaven, and John the Baptist, all he was there to do was pave the way for Jesus. If we affirm John the Baptist is from heaven, then we got to affirm Jesus from heaven, and we don't want to do that. Then verse 32, if they say John's authority was from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet. Like everybody else thought John was a prophet. He was a person of reverence, of respect. And if they said, hey, well, John the Baptist, he was also from man. Like he kind of created his own leadership and he wasn't from heaven. Then they know like all this crowd of people at the temple is going to revolt against them. These religious leaders who remember are hanging on to their power tightly. And so they're stuck. They've been trying to shake Jesus down. But Jesus says, turn the tables. He's doing the shaking down. 
they're stuck, and we see it in verse 33. They don't know what to say, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And I love this. The message translation says it this way. They decided to concede that round to Jesus. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a good one, Jesus. You got that one. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus, you notice this? Jesus never, in this specific passage, never explains this authority that he has. They're just experiencing it right now. They're experiencing like we're trying to trap Jesus and shake him down. And they're like, oh, wait a second, Jesus, you're unshakable. And he never even says about his authority and how God sent him down and, and all these types of things. I was at the right hand of the Father. I'm to be one of glory. I am king. He never explains all that. He never defends himself. He just lets them experience his authority. And some things are like that in life, aren't they? Some things in life, you don't have to explain them. You just experience them and you see how big, how authoritative they are. My wife and I experienced this the other day. We went for a hike. We like to, to hike, and we went to Paestawa Peak. And we got a babysitter, the whole thing, so we could do it, and we could summit to the top. And by the way, men, fathers, date your spouse. Date your, your wife. I know it's hard. You got to plan for a babysitter. I got to do that. I know you have to juggle your schedule at work. I got to do that. Plan for it. Date your spouse. The more you invest in your marriage, the more you'll invest in your kids. The more you love your spouse, the more your kids will see your love as a father. Amen? Date your spouse, all right? After this Father's Day, you take your spouse on a date. That's what we did, and we have to find that time just like you do, but we did it, and we made it on this mountain, and we're doing a hiking date. And now we get up uh, and start going up the mountain, and we kind of were like, why didn't we just go eat brunch? <laughs> because my hamstrings hurt. You know, and this is like Piestawa Peak, if you ever hiked it. I mean, it's like straight up. It's like a workout. It's just a straight up steep incline. But as we're walking up, we, we feel that, right? We feel it. We experience the pain of this hiking date. Then we get up to the top. And, and just a pro tip for you, I got up to the top, and uh, I've hiked Piestawa Peak multiple times. But an experienced hiker, a friend of mine, let me hike it with him one time. And he was like, hey, what are you doing? I got all the way up to the top, going up to the top with everybody else. He's like, you kind of hang it right at the very last point, And you turn to the right. And this is actually, when you get up to the right, pro tip, when you get up to the right, you can see you're actually at the highest point. And so just took away my, my fatherhood, my manhood for a little bit. And just, I thought I summited Piastoa Peak lots of times, apparently none. Right? <laughs> But now I know. So my wife and I were hiking up, and I'm like, babe, let's go to the right. And she's like, no, everybody goes this way. I'm like, babe, let's go to the right. We're going to summit this mountain. It's right here. There's a little gold emblem. And we get up there, and we're sitting up by the gold emblem by the summit of Paestoa Peak. And guess what didn't happen? We didn't have to talk about how high up we were. We didn't have to, as we looked across the city of Phoenix and saw the great landscape and saw downtown, and we were at this high, powerful mountain, this grand place, we didn't have to explain that. We just looked at each other, and we sensed it, and we felt it, and we experienced it. This big mountain. Some things are like that. Jesus is like that. You don't always have to explain it. You experience it. When he's forgiving sin in Mark chapter 2, he didn't necessarily explain his authority. People just experienced the power of it. 
when he's hanging out with sinners and people look at that and be like, that's different. And he's reclining at the table with them. You just experience, like, this is someone who has different authority. It's unique authority. We're experiencing, we don't always have to hear it explained. We're experiencing that authority. When Jesus tells demons to shut up, you're experiencing a different kind of authority, an unshakable authority. When he rebukes storms with his very word, that's That's a different type of authority, and you experience his authority. Jesus has that kind of authority. These religious leaders, he didn't need to explain it to them, although he does a little bit in a parable. He didn't have to. They can just experience, God, you are an authoritative God. You are an unshakable authority. They're experiencing that right now. So the question is, have you experienced that? When you think about God, what comes into your mind? Is it this, unshakable authority? He can explain it, but you can just experience it. Do you see God that way? Or do you see him like a grandpa, like a butler, there just to serve your needs? Maybe, I don't know if he's powerful enough to challenge me. I don't know if he's powerful enough to change this sin in my life. I mean, God, he's just a nice older man, the man upstairs. He loves me, but I don't know if he has the authority in my life. What comes to your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. What do you think about God? Do you see him as unshakable authority? Jesus is showing us that's who he is. He's unshakable authority. The second thing is he's unrelenting pursuit. Unrelenting pursuit. Look at chapter 12 with me. Starting in verse 1, it says this. And he began to speak to them in parables. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. And dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, them, get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived what, that, that he had told this parable against them, so they left him and went away. Now, some of you might be like, hey, what's going on here? Is Jesus just thirsty? Why all the talk about the vineyard, Right? I mean, he was just talking with these religious leaders. He's still talking to them, but he's sharing a story. And it's not just a story he made up. It derives from Isaiah chapter 5, and it's this imagery of a vineyard. And there's several things we know from what Jesus is saying. We know the context of this, right? Religious, hefty leaders who think they run the show, and they're questioning the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is trying to let them know, hey, you're experiencing my authority. I'm going to explain it just a little bit. And he uses Isaiah chapter 5 and this imagery of a vineyard. And there's several things we see from this. It's really, first of all, this is really just the story of the whole Bible in one period. 
that, that Jesus is describing God as the owner. Who created the vineyard? The owner. Who's the owner? God. Who put all the protection and the provision in the vineyard? God, the owner. Right? He creates the vineyard, and he doesn't just throw out a vineyard. He puts a fence. He puts a watchtower. He puts the pit for the wine press. We see that God is owner. He's creator, and he gives us everything we need for life. He makes provision. But then we see also God gives us, God gives us and people rights to rule over those vineyards and rights to lead in his creation. And they're not owners, they're stewards. The parable of the tenants, they're tenants. And so God creates everything. He makes provision for this vineyard, for all of creation. And then he gives people the ability to steward his creation. And then we see rejection. You see him sending servants over and over who are beaten, some who are killed. Those servants, that's the entire Old Testament. That's prophets. God is sending prophets to come in and tell the people, hey, hey, God loves you. Hey, you should obey God. Hey, God loves you. You should obey God. Hey, if you don't love God and if you don't obey him, there is pain and destruction. And we see that in the Old Testament. Maybe some of you have wondered, like, why is everybody so angry? Why are all these prophets coming in? Because God is trying to tell people he, he loves them. He wants them to obey him. And if they don't, there will be pain. And what we see with the prophets is what we see with these servants in the vineyard. They get beaten. They get killed. We see just three, Isaiah, historically, he was sawed in half. Jeremiah, he was thrown into a pit and stoned to death. Zechariah, he was stoned to death as well. We start to see this is a picture Jesus is painting of the whole Bible. God's an owner. He has stewards. He comes in to get his fruit, which he rightly owns, and we look at him, and we think we're the owners, even though we're just the occupiers, and we reject him, and we beat the people he sent to tell us that he loves us, to obey him. And that's the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell, these prophets coming to warn the people and getting beaten and even killed. And then we see the result of that is that pain, it is that judgment. Verse 9, there is destruction. God says, at some point, I'm going to remove you, I'm going to destroy you. As you continually reject me, over and I send a servant, you beat him, you kill him. I send another servant. You don't listen to him either. You beat him again. I send my son, the cornerstone. He's not just a servant. He's the son. And you kill him too. And you see, there is judgment. If you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, and you see God as just love, or maybe you've grown up in the church and you just see God as love, and you just you want to see him that way, and life is hard, and, and sin is hard, and temptation is hard, and, and fatherhood is hard, and you're like, God loves me. I mean, he is kind of like a grandpa to him. Like, I mean, God loves me. And you think, well, there's no judgment. I mean, there is. And even Jesus is painting that picture. Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible and the Gospels. And we think Jesus, well, no, but he's, he's only loving. He, he loves you too much to let you disobey and sin and go after something else, something else that's not worthy of his plan for your life. So even in this story, this parable, there's judgment. How many times he's going to send a servant? How many times sends a servant? How many times have you heard a word from God? Have you read your Bible and you know, like, I need to go this way and not that way. I need to go towards righteousness and not sin. If you continually reject God and go your own way, there is judgment. Why? 
He sent Jesus, the cornerstone. All the other stones fit around him. If you don't accept him, if you reject him, you reject life, you reject health, and you receive judgment. So even in this story, we start to see the ownership of God, the stewardship he grants us, the rejection of men, the judgment of God. But we also see, and lastly, this is where we'll end, is we see the unrelenting pursuit of God. Notice, the owner, God, sends servant after servant after servant. They reject him, they reject him, they reject him. He keeps sending and he doesn't start, stop with servants. He doesn't stop with prophets. He sends his son. Uh, Jesus is telling the story. He, he sends his beloved son. Where does Jesus get that phrase? Well, that's what God the Father called him at his baptism. Jesus is the beloved son. And they haven't killed him yet, but he's on his way to death. Okay? And you see the unrelenting pursuit of God. Personally, I would have stopped with a servant. Maybe the first one. It's my vineyard. I gave you guys all this. And not only are you just not receiving my servants, you're beating them. You're rejecting them. I would have stopped maybe with the first servant, the second, the third. I, I would have definitely stopped before I sent my son. Right? Now, I'm a dad. I have a son. He's um, six years old. He'll be seven July 13th. And there's lots of amazing things I could tell you about my son. Uh, but one of my favorite moments of my son is he had for his school a dance with his mom. Like a, a mommy-son kind of date dance, right? And they would give us instructions on what this dance is going to look like. And they would say to my son in his class, but also in communication to us as parents, hey, this is a dance. Like moms, take your sons out. And, and it's like a, a, a thing where you dress up at. And so you're going to want to get some nicer clothes, gel back the hair, like do the whole thing. Like this is like a dance, like a mother-son date. Now there's two meanings of dress up, right? One meaning of dress up is like you put on a suit, you get dressed up, you do slick back your hair, you do the whole thing, wear a tie, bow tie, whatever your style is. That's one way to take dress up. There's another way to take dress up. And my son took that meaning, and so the night comes for this mother and son dance, get dressed up nice, do the whole thing. And we walk into his room. We're like, hey, you getting dressed? And he's like, yep. And he is putting on a ninja outfit <laughs> complete with throwing stars and knives, right? Now, one of the reasons my, my wife is so great and so beautiful and so gracious is she didn't say, get back in there and put on that tie. We're not wearing that to this dance. She just let it ride, <laughs> Right? And we let it ride, and we took pictures of them before they went to the dance, and he had a ninja outfit on, and she had a dress on, looked as beautiful as ever for this date night with her son, right? And so they show up, and there's all these other kids with little suits on, and little jackets on, and little bow ties on, and they're dressed up. And then you have my son and his best friend. They took it the same way. They're both ninjas. And all the, the moms are dancing with these cute little boys with slick back hair and suits on, trying to picture this. And they're like slow dancing and doing the whole thing. My, two, my, my ninja son and his friend, they're break dancing all over the floor, right? <laughs> they got dressed up for the dance, right? Now, I could tell you a lot more about my son. I could tell you just how he's learning to read right now. And he's about to go into first grade. I could tell you how he plays basketball and soccer. And I mean, he loves sports. I could tell you how he loves to tell jokes. And he always gets them right. And we're like, where did you hear that joke? 
I could tell you so many amazing things about my son. I could go on. And I could also tell you this. I love you. Like, as your pastor, like, I I deeply love you. If you've been around for a long time and and we know each other, like, I I love you. If this is your first Sunday, like, I, I love you. Even if I don't know you, I can tell you the reason we get prepared for all of this on a Sunday, to preach a sermon, to do worship, to open up this place, it's because we love you. We say love moves, that the we're imperfect people who have been moved by the perfect love of Jesus. Like, whoever you are today, I love you. But I don't know that I'd give my son for you. Like, that son, the one I just told the story about, and I could tell so many more stories about, like, I love you. I don't know if I'd give him up for you. But that's exactly what God did. Sent the servants, sent the prophets. We reject him. We go our own way. Keep sending them. Isaiah, maybe Jeremiah, maybe Zechariah, maybe they'll get it then. And we don't. And so he sends his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die in your place, to rise again for you. That's what God did. Maybe John 3.16 is an old verse to you and you just kind of recite it and go about your way. That's what that verse describes. That's what this parable describes. It describes ownership and stewardship and rejection and even judgment, but it also describes unrelenting pursuit. So the second question is today, when you think about God, what comes to mind? Is it that? When you think about God, do you think about unshakable authority? When you think about God, do you also think about unrelenting Pursuit that he loves you like that, that he didn't give up on you, he didn't walk out on you, no matter what you've done, no matter what you where you've been, that God keeps pursuing you even after you reject him. Yes, even when you're indifferent, even when you're bored with church and his word, and you'd you'd rather pull up things on your phone than go read his his infinite word to you. Like even those moments, God is still pursuing you. He's still coming after you, and he does it with his own son. We see these two traits of God. He is unshakable authority. Yeah, powerful, mighty, judge. But he also is unrelenting pursuit, and he's both. When you think about God, what comes into your mind? Is it those things? Is it one of those things but not the other things? It needs to be both. Jesus is the exact representation of God. He shows us that's what God is like. Is that what you think about when you think about God? Why does this matter so much? Why does A.W. Tozer say, hey, this is the most important thing about you? Do you you see God this way or that way or do you see both? Why is this so important? Tozer also says this. He says, whatever we think about God, we will move toward. Whatever mental image of God we have in our minds, we will move toward that image. All right, so if you, you see God as just this impersonal cosmic force, divine scorekeeper, you move towards that. And maybe some of you, that's your story with God. You've been moving towards that God your whole life, and you never measure up. And men, maybe you feel like this. You never, me- I'm not the father I should be. I, I didn't take my wife out on a date. Thanks for reminding me, and she's going to remind me later. Right, and you just see it's all a a score, a tally, a great God, but I don't know if he pursues me. 
And maybe he did when I was little, but maybe not anymore. And you begin to move towards that God. And every time you sing a song and every time you open up his word and every time you go to work, you're moving towards that God. And then some of you, it's it's the opposite. You see God as loving Grandpa Butler, like it's all about me. And, And every time you sing, you see God that way. And every time you go to work, you see God that way. But what happens when sin comes into the equation? What happens when suffering comes into the equation? What happens when strife enters in? That loving grandpa, what's he going to do about my sin? I mean, he's probably not powerful enough to forgive me of this sin. He's probably not powerful enough to challenge me on my sin and change me in the midst of my sin. And every time you go to church and go to work and with your family, you're going towards that God. And you're moving towards that God. And what we need to learn today is you should move to the true God reflected in the life of Jesus, that he is the unshakable authority and he's unrelenting in his pursuit of you. Move towards that God in the way you sing, in the way you work, in the way you love, in the way you serve, in the way you pray. Move towards that God because that is God. And Jesus is gracious enough to come and show us what God is like in his pursuit of you and his authority over you. What comes to your mind when you think about God? How are you moving towards this God? What do you need to embrace today? Maybe some of you, it's, hey, I I am uncomfortable with the authority of God, and I need to embrace that. Maybe some of you, if you're honest, hey, I, I don't feel loved, and I don't feel pursued, and I need to embrace that. What do you need to embrace today to begin to move towards that God? Let's do that as we pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father, that you are an authoritative God who's all-powerful but who also pursues and loves us. And God, I pray that in this moment now, we would begin to have those thoughts come into our minds, and they wouldn't just stop in our minds and terminate in our minds, but they would move to our heart, and they would lead to the works of our hand. And God, as we think about you, and that changes the way we we love you, that we would, it would change the way we pursue you, and we would move towards the God of the Bible, Jesus, God in the flesh that we just learned about today. God, I pray for your help in that. I pray as we respond now in song, as we move towards baptisms, that we would remember this is why we get baptized. It's to proclaim that a, a strong and loving God, an authoritative but unrelenting pursuing God, is the God who has saved us, who has brought us from death to life. And that's why we clap so much, and that's when we go down in cold water and come back out, is to celebrate the God we know to be true from Scripture who has saved us, who gave his son for us, even when we rejected him. God, help us to think about that God and live for that God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.